The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Chinese export growth slows as the world's second largest economy grapples with surging costs, supply disruptions and a stronger UR. A troubled Chinese property developer Evergrande teeters on the brink amid reports some foreign bondholders have not received overdue payments as today's deadline expires. Elsewhere, the IMF's Kristalina Gorgieva tells CNBC the fund may cut Eurozone growth forecasts amid concerns over the Omicron COVID variant and persistently higher inflation. There is a bit of loss of momentum in the recovery, US, China. To sum it up, we may have a very modest downgrade in the cards for the Eurozone. The Dow jumps nearly 650 points, erasing last week's losses as investors appear to shake off their worries about the virulence of Omicron. Meanwhile, Asian markets follow suit, with Japan's Nikkei jumping more than 2%. And a chill in US-China relations, with Washington announcing a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics citing human rights concerns. Good morning, everybody. And we kick off the program this morning by focusing on more data from the world's second largest economy, i.e. China, uh, which appears to indicate um, the stabilisation but some slowing trends. Uh, Chinese export growth slowing in the month of November, rising by 22% year on year compared to a previous month's rise of 27.1%. This amid weakening demand and stronger performance of the yuan. But imports in the world's second largest economy coming in above expectations, jumping nearly 32% against a forecast of less than 20%. We already know in the last uh, 24 hours or so, we've seen a triple R cut from the central bank here to try and ease uh, monetary tightness in the economy. But Sam, as we come out to you here and we look at that spike in import prices, can we put that down largely to energy related uh, and raw material related um, stockpiling by the Chinese authorities? Yeah, Jeff, good morning to you. That's exactly what it was all about. It was certainly a strong appetite for those commodities, those imports really surprising to the upside in the month of November, uh, really coming in a lot higher than expectations, as I say, on that strong appetite for commodities. Uh, but also it does uh, sort of indicate a little bit of a pickup in that domestic demand. Uh, when it does come to the export side of things, it's important to point out that still did uh, beat expectations. We do know that those exports uh, have remained 
resilient in the face of the pandemic as the demand for goods out of China has remained uh, very strong. We did see a little bit of softening, uh, certainly from the month of October, as uh, perhaps some of that demand did start to taper. Analysts have been expecting that. Uh, but also on these higher costs, we know things around transport uh, have been quite expensive, uh, certainly for some of these exporters, uh, particularly against the backdrop of this strengthening yuan. So that's why we did see a bit of a slowdown. Uh, but certainly this is still double-digit growth, uh, pretty pretty strong double-digit growth when it comes to the export side of things as well. And uh, economists have certainly suggested uh, that this is still helping mitigate or acting as a buffer, certainly for some of these domestic uh, headwinds. Uh, but when we come back to the import side of things, if we look under the hood as to what really, uh, you know, juiced up the optics of that uh, headline number, those imports were really helped by those shipments, as you say, of iron ore and crude oil, but also these uh, soybeans coming from the United States. Coal imports hit the highest level all year as China has been really scrambling over the last few months to address the energy shortage in the country and try to keep people warm this winter. So really it was the strong imports were said to be likely driven uh, certainly by this restocking of key commodities in China rather than, you know, a big pickup in domestic demand. Because if you look at those PMI numbers we got out last week, we are still seeing a bit of weakness uh, there, particularly as China is maintaining this zero COVID uh, approach. And as I say, this is consistent uh, with those PMI numbers uh, that we did get last week, which did show uh, certainly a degree of stabilisation, particularly at the bigger and state-owned firms, certainly as we know that the uh, energy crunch and also these high raw material costs have started to ease in the country. That all brought the trade balance to $71.7 billion from that record trade surplus we saw the month before. The trade surplus with the US also narrowing uh, to almost $37 billion. Of course, that number is closely watched as China is still trying to meet its end of the bargain when it comes to that phase one trade agreement. Perhaps uh, those uh, imports of soybeans helping that out. But yes, it does come, as you say, Jeff, just a day after China's central bank did announce that uh, triple R cut, the second one we've seen all year. Certainly a sign now from the policymakers of their intention to mitigate the, uh, you know, slowing economic growth at the moment. This will be a 50 basis point cut, sort of freeing up $188 billion uh, into the system. This won't apply to the banks with a triple R of 5%, uh, but certainly after this reduction, the weighted average for the banks will be 8.4%. This will all take effect uh, on December the 15th. Interesting comments uh, coming from the PBOC, which did say the latest cut will bring down these financing costs, but there certainly was a big emphasis that this measure uh, is really to help support the small to medium-sized businesses, which have been slower to recover from the pandemic. Steve, back to you. Lovely work, Sam, as ever. Thank you very much indeed for that. Right, let's move on. We'll stay in the region, though, because some Evergrande bondholders have not yet received coupon payments, according to Reuters sources, despite the 30-day grace period ending uh, just over an hour ago. Uh, in the world's most indebted property developer, there's a title for you, uh, it failed to find the money for $82.5 million of payments due. Evergrande faces its first offshore deal default on a public bond. Well, Emily filed this report. 
Shares in Evergrande rebounded as much as 8.3% today after losing 20% a day earlier and hitting an all-time record low. The market is watching to see whether the world's most indebted property developer is able to make good on its $82.5 million coupon payment and avoid a default. We have seen the company make 11th hour payments in the past. The 30-day grace period ending on December the 6th has now expired. The property developer, meanwhile, has set up a risk management committee, which includes officials from state entities to help mitigate and eliminate future risks. By midday, Evergrande shares have trimmed earlier gains. Also worth a mention, over at Kaisa, $400 million in bonds mature today. Offshore bondholders earlier rejected its offer to extend the debt maturity following missed interest payments on November the 11th and 12th. The company also faces the 30-day grace period expiry at the end of this week. We continue to track the mainland property developers. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva told CNBC the Eurozone has returned to pre-pandemic levels and should be able to withstand inflationary pressures better than the United States. However, she warned serious headwinds still remain. The outlook for the uh, euro area is positive. What we see is remarkable rebounds since 2020 when the economy shrank by 6.5%. This year, for now, our projection is for 5% growth in 21, 4.3 in 22. And when we look at this recovery, what is important to recognize is that by now the Eurozone is back to the pre-pandemic levels. Why such a good achievement? Vaccinations, strong policy support, and businesses and people learning how to function with the pandemic still around us. To sum it up, we may have a very modest downgrade in the cards for the Eurozone. Let's get out to Silvio for more on that interview. Silvio, fantastic interview there with Gorgieva. We are all questioning our assumptions now around how Europe can progress as we deal with this new variant. Just walk us through some of the messaging there from Gorgieva. So she said that it is uh, still a positive story within uh, the Eurozone context. She said, of course, there has been quite a lot of work on the vaccination front. But of course, she also highlighted that the fact there are uh, concerns when it comes to higher energy prices, when it comes to higher inflation. And there's a huge question mark there as to whether these, this higher inflation that we're seeing over the last few months is actually transitory or where it's actually here to stay. And when I asked Georgieva whether the message from the IMF would be the same that they sent to the Fed last week when the fund said that uh, the Federal Reserve should actually taper at a faster pace, she said that that's not the message from the IMF to the European Central Bank. Let's take a look. Very different conditions in different countries. Uh, heterogeneous inflation situation. In the US, the pressure on uh, prices is uh, stronger. Why it is stronger? Well, first, the uh, U.S. households have accumulated a lot of savings, you know, 12% more than they had before the pandemic, because supply disruptions are hitting 
a uh, different sectors in the US and most importantly people don't want to go back to work so labor shortage especially low skilled workers putting pressure on wages and through their pressure on prices you look at Europe in Europe yes energy prices by the way that's the same for the US but in energy prices uh, are up we see the uh, um, temporary factors like the um, uh, German VIT impacting but there is no pressure through wages up on prices and expectations for inflation are still in the medium term close but still below 2%. In other words, they're well anchored. Different, and then if you go to Japan, Japan is way under the inflation target. So different circumstances require different responses. In the US, it is appropriate for the Fed to, temp, uh, to, to taper asset purchases, possibly accelerate the uh, path to uh, rate increases. Here, not uh, appropriate at this time because simply the conditions are not there. We expect in 2022 inflation to weaken mm -hmm. below 2%. So unless something changes, and it may, we may have the Chinese economy shrinking or uh, real estate market um, undoing what has been, uh, been done in creating some, some uh, uh, price pressures from there. If that happens, ECB has the tools to respond. But short of these wage pressures or other factors, ECB is right to be accommodative and support return to growth on a higher level in Europe. You've mentioned there different policy reactions across the world. Of course, the Fed is expected to tighten, the ECB is expected to adjust the APP purchase program in March. China this morning said that they're actually cutting interest rates. Mm -hmm. Are you worried about this uncoordinated monetary policy response? Well, that is a very excellent question. When we go back to the beginning of this crisis, coordination meant that countries pretty much do the same thing within the parameters they can do it. Monetary policy accommodation, fiscal policy loosening, support for households and businesses. That was then. Today, conditions in countries are very different. Different stage of the pandemic, different level of vaccination, different speed of recovery, different level of debt, different inflation uh, pressures. And what we're saying to our members is calibrate your policies to your specific circumstances. It is actually harder today because then uniform policy. Now differentiate, differentiated policies and still we need to talk to each other so we understand the context within which we apply different policy measures. 
Kristalina Georgieva there, the head of the IMF, saying that it is right for the ECB to keep this accommodative stance. And of course, that's very important in the context that we're expecting a new meeting from the ECB next week. Let's see what's going to happen to the asset purchases program, to PEP, whether that's still ending in March. And then Georgieva also making an interesting point there about the fact that whether at the start of the pandemic we saw all the central banks pretty much choosing the path of stimulus, stimulus and more stimulus. But now the coordination is more about talking to one another. But when it comes to the actual policies, the approaches there have to be different because vaccination rates are different across different countries. Uh, inflationary pressures are also at different levels. So the message from the IMF when it comes to the ECB and the Fed is Fed keep tapering at a faster pace, in fact, but the ECB, let's still keep an accommodative stance. Sylvia, thank you very much indeed for that. Let me pick up there and just point out for more on the headwinds that may cause the IMF to cut forecasts for the euro area and the rest of that first on interview, you can go to cnbc.com and maybe we'll just take a moment here to reflect on what uh, Madame Gorgieva has basically told us. Um, Let's be clear about this. The IMF is not a policy-making body. Um, it is part of the story, though, and it's always good to hear their opinions, even though it kind of adds to the noise that investors are having to work with. Um, let's be clear, though, there are signals uh, in spite of some of the noise, and I think things like the Chinese triple uh, R cut is a clear signal that the people in charge of the world's second-largest economy clearly want to maintain current growth trajectories and are prepared to adapt monetary conditions to achieve that. And I would say as we're all challenging uh, ourselves here to try and understand how virulent Omicron is and uh, we're trying to get the right calibration to understand just what change in the risk environment is appropriate here. Worth also noting Sajid Javid, the UK health minister, now talking about uh, community transfer in the UK with 336 cases here. So this this thing is going to be with us uh, for a while, it seems here. But very interesting, the markets now are reassessing just how concerned uh, they appear to be about whether this will be like Delta or Beta and lead to significant government restrictions and slow, slowing of growth. And at the moment, I think it's too early to say that that is the case here. And I think uh, even as we've seen uh, confidence in these markets dented a little bit with that rebound overnight in the United States and the subsequent bounces we're seeing in other parts of the world here, it does seem that this rally is still intact, Karen. Yeah, just a, a point around the decision making here, because we are waiting it up for a number of central banks this month to give us some clarity around the rate setting pathway. But will they have any more information by then? We are, of course, also waiting for scientists to give us that information that Jeff just questioned, uh, whether this is the same as other variants in terms of how we handle some of the restrictions or whether much uh, higher levels of restrictions are going to be required to tame the virus. And that's the anomaly here. While we may be talking about concerns that transitory inflation will 
will stay for much, much longer. We also have to question the growth path and what sort of supportive policies are going to be necessary from here, whether we can take away some of the fiscal and monetary stimulus or whether it's still going to be incredibly necessary to keep economies supported. And I think the fact that we simply do not know, and if you look at German bonds, it feels like it's a bet each way. You've seen this trade almost close to zero at one point on some optimism about exit from this pandemic and uh, moves towards some sort of retreat. But now we've come back a little bit on some of the concerns around growth and, and the exit path from here. So I think uh, the Bunds are telling you it's a, it's a bet each way where we go from here. But uh, incredibly interesting central bank meetings. It really is all about central banks this month uh, in a few days' time, Steve. Yeah, Karen, I, I, all of the above from both of you. I mean, what, what can I say? I mean, I think Gorgieva summed it up in two sentences, which got the rest of us who uh, have concerns about modern monetary theory quite confused. One sentence in Europe, we are back to pre-pandemic levels, okay? 5.0% growth in 2021, the, the esteemed lady said, uh, around 4.2% in 2022. And then she says a little bit later on, it is not appropriate to taper. Well, we're either back to where we were or we're not. And if it's not appropriate to taper, then why not? Because let's face it, Karen, as Professor Sarah Gilbert has said in the last 24 hours, and, and anyone who knows anything about epidemiology, which doesn't include me, by the way, uh, there will be another variant. And some of these other variants will be quite scary as well. Uh, and, and, you know, again, as Theresa May, the former prime minister, was saying yesterday in the United Kingdom, uh, she said, and how's the parliament? Look, we can't just keep shutting down the economy every time there's another variant and just running uh, for more draconian measures as well. So there will be more variants and some of them will be very scary it's just a question of what the reaction is from governments and the reaction from policymakers. well and but again i'll go back to my initial confusion we're either back to where we were pre-pandemic in which case some of the tapering some of the emergency measures need to be taken off or we're not and there's a longer term problem here and we all know there's a longer term problem uh, and that is that modern monetary theory uh, that there are problems in the fact that we're just building debt upon debt upon debt uh, and no one's willing to pay for it in the short term hence we're just going to build up more debt and what kind of growth are we getting for that debt and there's been a lot of work done from economists on the smaller amount of economic growth we're getting from the piling on of extra debt uh, and that's a medium-term problem it's a problem for our children it's a problem for our grandchildren uh, let's pick up and uh, let's talk about uh, another organization that's uh, offering some warnings around growth the bank for international settlements has urged policymakers to keep their guard up amid the emergence of the new COVID-19 variant. As countries reintroduce restrictions, BIS officials warned that Omicron could exacerbate supply chain bottlenecks, hurt economic activity and increase volatility in the markets, particularly in the first quarter of next year. In its quarterly review, the Central Bank of Central Banks also highlighted issues with crypto assets regulation and risks associated with open-ended bond funds. We will speak with Augustine Carstens, the general manager of the BIS, later today. Don't miss the conversation at 12.15 Central European time. How do policymakers keep their guard up against new COVID-19 variants. They're economists, aren't they? <sighs> Coming up on the show, executives from the world's top oil and gas companies descend on Houston this week for the World Petroleum Congress. Our exclusive interviews with the former BP boss, Bob Dudley, and the current Total Energies boss, Patrick Pouyonnet, are coming up. And for more on the latest Chinese data and property market jitters, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. It was a buy the dip day yesterday, investors getting back on board these stocks and uh, you'll note that there was an outperformance by the Dow which still hints to some underlying caution around the big technology names even in a fairly upbeat session. Uh, investors getting back on board big stocks like Apple for instance but those lingering fears around the interest rate setting still impacting uh, the sort of stocks and sectors investors are willing to own at this point. So a slight underperformance by those big tech names versus say the banks and as we talk about potential lift off in rates next year stateside that is still a story for the banks and uh, you can see the Dow 1.8 8% higher, so a strong move to the upside there. In terms of what we saw across uh, some of the big travel stocks, uh, this is where it was a fairly decent session playing out as well. Uh, many of these big name stocks uh, were in the green. You can see uh, Airtrip 7.6% higher, Royal Caribbean 8.2%, Carnival and the cruise shipping business, United Airlines, and also. In Australia, we had Qantas reporting today, and this is the big airline uh, from that part of the world. It was talking about getting back to pre-COVID levels, about 115% of capacity domestically by April next year. But uh, clearly big question marks around the international travel were still very compromised uh, borders at this point. And also worth noting, too, that they're converting two passenger flights to passenger carriers into freight uh, carrying aircraft and that could be something we hear more of from the industry so just worth noting that thought that was fascinating telling us where a lot of the profitability is around freight transportation at this point uh, not passengers uh, the asian markets more broadly uh, given some of these undercurrents you're seeing by the sector level it was a stronger day across uh, so far for japanese stocks 500 odd points to the upside so very much picking up on that theme from the United States. There's been a lot playing out for those China markets, including the trade numbers on export imports, not to mention Evergrande as well. The market closely watching a narrative around uh, the potential still for default that's a huge one for markets. Australia is uh, bouncing at this stage. We did see the Reserve Bank of Australia deciding to leave interest rates at 0.1 of a percent and also stay with its bond buying plan. So no rush to exit from the Aussies at this point and that's supported for the market there. The oil markets. Uh, let's take a quick look at Brent and WTI. It's a bounce today for the energy complex. 1.6 up on WTI, 1.3 high on Brent and uh, that is a slight recovery and we saw that yesterday around news around the pricing that the Saudis were able to achieve with some of their key clients. Steve. Yeah, that's really interesting what you were saying about Qantas, Karen, that they will convert some carrier capability to uh, freight from passenger. That Maybe they're taking a leaf out of some European low-cost carriers who have always carried passengers but treated them like freight. Maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding something. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay, let's move on. Patrick Pouillonet, uh, the CEO of Total Energies, has told CNBC supply constraints are driving current oil market conditions. Uh, speaking to our US colleagues at the World Petroleum Congress in Houston, he outlined the lessons that can be learned from Europe's energy crunch. The energy markets are becoming more complex, more interconnected. Yep. And also there is another message behind that, which is supporting this price, 
We have also a lack of supply somewhere, you know, supply of oil, supply of gas. Why? Because you have a pressure on the oil and gas investments. The oil and gas investments have decreased between 2014 and this year from $700 billion per year to $300. Cut and, you know, more, it's more than more. cut in half. That's true. More than, and, it's, it's, and that has an impact because if you don't continue to invest while the demand is growing, then the price will adapt the demand to the supply. Uh, CNBC's Brian O'Sullivan uh, also um, asked uh, Patrick whether he, there is a renewable energy product that is uh, a better economic bet. We are fundamentally in commodity business, which is market economics with volatility of the price. So there is no guarantee. What you must look when you are in a commodity business is the cost of production, to be a low-cost producer. This is the only guarantee. Today, you have people thinking that you can develop renewables with what we call PPAs, you know, a guaranteed price. But that's just the beginning of this industry. Obviously, it's electricity that you produce, like in the mm -hmm. US. And at the end, you will have electricity from renewables, from the gas, from coal, from LNG, and from batteries. In fact, what you need is to invest more and more in storage of electricity in order to cope with volatility. So I think for me, it's another additional energy an additional source of opportunities and revenues, and all companies, Total Energies. We are major in oil and gas. What, do, what are we? We are integrated companies along the value chain able to manage this complexity. This is why we want to integrate renewables and electricity in our mix. Uh, Patrick Pugliano there speaking to Brian Sullivan, not O'Sullivan. I gave him an extra O. OK, in the meantime, uh, while most agree that the energy transition towards cleaner fuels is going to accelerate, the former BP CEO Bob Dudley says renewables alone won't be enough. There's no doubt demand will go down and focusing the use of oil and gas will, will occur, no doubt. Renewables will expand, but they're not going to be enough to actually drive the economy. In fact, I don't think you could even hit the goals of the Paris Accords without natural gas and new technologies like CCUS, carbon sequestration and use. Those are going to have to be part of this and the oil and gas industry and the companies, and they will transition into being massive energy companies, uh, will, their products are going to be needed. Uh, Bob Dudley there. Right. Global fossil fuel demand has rebounded sharply in 2021, with natural gas already at pre-pandemic levels and oil nearing levels reached in 2019. This according to the chief executive of the world's largest oil producer, Saudi Aramco. Uh, that demand together with supply shortages uh, and a big decrease in investments is creating a perfect storm for social unrest. Interesting that uh, he should mention social unrest. Speaking at the World Petroleum Congress, Armin Nasser warned of a chaotic energy transition uh, and said there was a deeply flawed assumption that the world could transition to cleaner fuels uh, virtually overnight. And, and let, let's be brutal about this, everybody. I mean, he, whilst there is a, a huge kernel of truth about what he's saying, he does absolutely represent the world's largest oil producer with the world's largest oil reserves, or certainly some of the largest oil reserves as well. So we have to take it with um, uh, the fact that this man, as, as we know, Jeff, uh, comes from a certain constituency. Yes, and, and given uh, that a lot of these comments, Steve, seem to have originated from an industry conference in Houston, uh, you're not too surprised that we're getting a certain amount of hubris uh, from these energy sector leaders. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.